With the Lord's help, let's uh, turn to John chapter 1 again. And reading at verse 47. Where Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And then at the close of the chapter, he gives Nathanael a promise, saying to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending (coughs) upon the Son of Man. Now these uh, words in that last verse are really the words that uh, I would like us to get towards and to look at. But we're not really going to be able to do that tonight uh, because it is best, first of all, to thoroughly understand where they come from. And with that in mind, I'd like us to consider particularly verse 47, where the Lord says concerning Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Now John the Apostle here is uh, taking us, as I mentioned before the reading, he's taking us to the banks of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing. John was a special prophet. There had been 400 years without a prophet, and suddenly John the Baptist appears. John tells us he was a man sent from God, and he was sent as a forerunner to announce the coming of the Lord Jesus and as well as announcing his coming, to prepare the way for his coming. And he did so by calling the people to repentance and calling them to listen and to receive the messenger that God himself was sending, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's there at the Jordan where John was baptizing that Christ makes his first public appearance and that's where he begins to gather his first disciples and it's interesting to note that all these disciples are drawn from the ranks of those people that God has already been preparing for that Uh, God has his ways of preparing people for whatever he has for them And although these early disciples are all from Galilee, at this point we find them in the vicinity of Jerusalem, in Judea. And of course they're there for a reason. They've come down south because they've come to hear and to follow that man who was sent from God, John the Baptist. They recognised in him a prophet, and therefore they have come to hear what the prophet has to say. In other words, these early followers of the Lord are people who are already believers, like normal Old Testament saints. 
They had faith in God. They were waiting for the Christ to come, the one who was called the consolation of Israel, like Simeon, the old man, and Anna, the prophetess. They were waiting for the kingdom of God. And as John the Baptist preaches about the coming of the Christ, and as he calls all of them to prepare for this coming of the Christ, one day, as John is preaching, of course, as you know well, the Lord Jesus makes his appearance. And John the Baptist is led by God to publicly identify him. And he singles him out from the crowd and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. It's not recorded at that point that anybody follows the Lord. So on the next day, John makes exactly the same identification and announcement. Behold, he says, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And two of those who were following John the Baptist and who loved his person and his teaching left him, one of whom was Andrew, Peter's brother, and immediately began to follow the Lord. And these early disciples were all like that. People from Galilee who loved the Lord and who loved John the Baptist and who loved the Lord Jesus when he appeared before them. James, John, Andrew and Peter. And that's where their life began as followers of Jesus. Later on, when they were fishing in Galilee, they would be called into full-time ministry. Later on after that, they would be called to become apostles. But this is where they began to follow the Lord. Now all of these, of course, are interesting people. And they come before us as quite prominent people in the New Testament. We all know Peter especially. We know John too. We know James to a lesser extent, Andrew to a lesser extent. But it's interesting that the main focus falls here on an early disciple of whom we know virtually nothing afterwards. Nathaniel, whose name means gift of God. In fact, the only other time he appears in Scripture, apart from the list of the apostles, is when he goes fishing with the apostles in John chapter 21. That's all. But the remarkable thing is that the Lord's meeting with him and the Lord's call of him receives most attention and gains the greatest prominence in this early chapter of John. He's the one who gets a special word of comfort. He gets a special word of encouragement for his needy soul, which the Lord knew, if nobody else did. And he gets a special promise too, that one day, if he continues, he will see heaven open, and he will see a stairway to heaven, and he will see God's angels ascending and descending on that stairway. That promise was given to him, not to Peter or James or John or Andrew, but given to Nathaniel. Now, the fact that Nathaniel more or less disappears from view at this point 
has led some people to say, well, obviously something went wrong. He failed in his calling, or he didn't realize in his life the promise that God had actually given to him. He just faded away. But that's making a mistake. There's no trace in the Bible that the promise God gave him was conditional. Christ said to him, hereafter you shall see, period. There's no ifs or buts, perhapses or maybes. Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's more, he's not the only apostle that drops out of view anyway. In fact, if you work your way through the scriptures, for example, through the Acts of the Apostles, it's really only Peter and Paul that come before us. The rest are labouring quietly in the portion that God has assigned to them in Jerusalem. But they laboured, and they have their reward. And that's sometimes all we need to know. It doesn't need to be a fuss and a fanfare. Just because Nathaniel isn't mentioned doesn't mean the Lord doesn't know what he's doing. It doesn't mean that Nathaniel hasn't received everything that God had to give him because he did receive it. God gave it and he received it. It was a gift of God for this man whose name is the gift of God. And he was introduced to these wonderful things. Let's never focus on celebrity and names and reputations, but just on things that are done. Things that are done for God. Things that are done in the name of Christ. But although this promise is given to Nathaniel directly, it's still important to understand that it belongs to us all. There's no doubt about that. There's a reason why God spoke it, sorry, a reason why Christ spoke it to him. There's a reason for that. There's a spiritual reason in connection with how Nathaniel felt at the time and what his spiritual condition was at the time. That's why the Lord spoke it to him. But although it was addressed personally to him, It was for the rest of the apostles too. And it's for you and it's for me. What Christ says of Nathaniel here can be said of every true Christian here tonight. That you are Israelites indeed without guile. And it can be said of you too that for you heaven will open. Heaven is already open and heaven will open still. And you too will see increasingly through time. The stairway to heaven and the wonder of God's angels ascending and descending on that stairway. So spoken to him, but addressed to us all. And we need to remember that. Now let's turn to the meeting itself between the Lord and Nathaniel. And before we look at it in detail, it's right to notice at the beginning that there's an element of mystery and obscurity connected to it. The, the terms are so unusual, the words are so unusual. I mean, prior to this, everything is more or less straightforward, and suddenly we have stairways and angels and an Israelite without guile and so on. We feel that to understand what the Lord is saying, we need a key of some kind. And of course we do. And the wonder of God's provision in the scriptures is that the key is always in the Bible itself. The Bible always provides the key for the understanding of the Bible. I've mentioned several times in 
uh, my previous congregation that John Brown, of course, uh, wrote a Bible with comments on it, and he called it the self-interpreting Bible. And the purpose of his comments in that Bible was just to show that you can get the answer to the Bible's questions inside the Bible itself. And it's so important to understand that as Christians. Uh, People think you, you need something else beyond the Bible to understand the Bible. You don't. It answers its own mysteries insofar as they can ever be answered. The key to understanding what the Lord says to us will lie within the pages of Scripture itself. And by prayer, you look for it, you search for it, and with God's grace, you turn the key and it opens to you. And of course, if we search the Scripture, we find the key to this passage. In the words that the Lord speaks to Nathaniel, there are two clear references to two important incidents in the life of Nathaniel's ancestor his great ancestor, Jacob, who later had a name change, not because he wanted one, but because God gave him one, whose name was changed from Jacob the supplanter to Israel the prince of God. There are two clear references to two outstanding incidents in that man's life. The first took place at Bethel when Jacob was still, well, relatively young. When he left home, effectively exiled, under the wrath of his brother, he felt that, well, he was leaving as a confused person because what God had promised didn't seem to be coming to pass. And instead of being heir of everything, he had nothing but the clothes on his back and the staff in his hand. And you'll remember how he lay down in Bethel to sleep with a stone for a pillow. And he dreamed a dream where God showed him a stairway to heaven. And on that stairway to heaven, God's angels were ascending and descending upon it. Jacob awoke a changed man. Even the place around him transformed. It was the old Canaanite site of Luz. Well, he renamed it Bethel because God was here, he says, and I didn't know it. He knew the Lord was there now, and he knew that the angels of God were encompassing him, and he knew that God would keep him and preserve him until the time came for him to come back. That was Bethel and the stairway to heaven. Christ obviously refers to that. There's no doubt that the last verse, which I want to look at with you, but it will have to be next week, is a reference to that. Nathaniel, I say to you, from now on you shall see an open heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The second incident from Jacob's life was 20 years later when he was coming back. Not this time at Bethel, the house of God, but at Peniel, which means face of God. That's what we read of in Genesis 32. That was the last night when Jacob tried to sort out matters according to his own wisdom and in his own strength. 
referencing where we were in the morning, Jacob had a tendency to sort out everything by might and by power, but not by the Spirit of the Lord. Well, this was the last night in which he tried to do that. This was the night in which the Lord took the matter in hand. Jacob didn't wrestle with God. God wrestled with him. And that night when God wrestled with him, Jacob would not let God go. And he wouldn't let God go until God blessed. A wonderful thing that is. He wouldn't let God go until God blessed him. We know that feeling ourselves when we're Christians because we know God is our only help at last. God has ways of stripping us, bringing us low and making us realise that we've only got God at the end of the day. And we won't let him go until he blesses us. And when we get there, we get to a blessed place. We get to a place really where we see the face of God. A new place of knowledge and of fellowship. God blessed him there. And the name of the place was changed. And so was his name. He's no longer called Jacob. He's now Israel. He's the first Israelite. He is a prince with God. From now on, he's a man without guile. He will no longer use his own wisdom to do God's work. He will do God's work in God's way. And clearly the Lord is referring to that in the words of our text tonight, where Jesus meets Nathaniel out of the blue, a man he had never met before, and he suddenly exclaims, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now if we keep, we use that key, and if we keep that connection between the spiritual experience of Jacob and the spiritual experience of Nathaniel, if we keep that connection in our mind, by God's grace, the passage will become alive to us. Well then, let's turn to Nathaniel himself. Now the fact is that we don't really know anything about this man's life or his background except that he comes from Cana of Galilee. Now it's an interesting thing that he seems to despise the village of Nazareth in Galilee, which is just not far down the road from his own village. In reality, Nazareth has um, no more or less about it than Cana had itself. I suppose sometimes you can find that places quite near each other in rural areas can, can have these animosities or rivalries or things of that kind. Perhaps there was a more spiritual reason why Nathaniel thought that nothing good could come out of a place like Nazareth. But the fact of the matter is that nothing much good was expected to come out of Cana either. It's just a small village in a backwater. It's, it's not a place that anybody knew or, or was really famous. But the fact of the matter is that God looks at a place like that. In fact, it's an interesting thing that the first miracle... Uh, the Lord performed, was performed in Cana of Galilee when he turned water into wine. And God takes a delight in doing things like that because it's a reminder to us that very often in God's kingdom it is not the noble and the mighty and the wise that God chooses but the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. Very often you find that people are, who are looked down upon because of their background or their culture or their class or something like that, God just takes them and he makes them his own. 
He sometimes brings elders out of them or brings preachers out of them. Or he makes them as men and women who are pillars in his own church and they came from nothing. So that the praise and the glory would belong to God and not to man. So that it would be said that the church of God was not built by might or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. All we know of this man, in other words, is that he he came from nowhere, really, in terms of importance. But what really matters is not so much where he's from, but where he is and what he's doing. Let's look at both. First of all, where he is, and that is under the fig tree. Or at least that's where he was a short time before this. And Christ knew that. Isn't that astonishing? There is Christ in the vicinity of the Jordan where John the Baptist is baptizing and he sees Nathaniel under a fig tree some distance away. Not by the eye of sight, but just with his knowledge. He is aware of Nathaniel under a fig tree. Being under a fig tree is a sign of, well, certainly somebody who wants privacy and solitude. It's also a sign of peace. When people were under their vines or under their fig trees, it was a sign that a society was enjoying peace. Micah in chapter 4 sees a day coming when the nations of the world would, would pour into the church of God. Uh, It's the day that we look forward to and pray for ourselves. He sees that day in chapter 4, and he says that in that day, every man will sit underneath his vine, underneath his fig tree. A fig tree gave shade. It could grow sometimes anywhere between 15 and 25 feet. Really thick foliage, and in the heat of the day, you could go underneath it and enjoy a private space. But it's a great mistake to think that being under a vine or under a fig tree is all about privacy and all about shame. Amongst the Jewish people, being under a vine or being under a fig tree meant that you were in prayer. It was our equivalent of the old world word closet. Your space was your secret space. It was a place where, well, I was going to say it's a place where you're on your own. I don't really mean that. I mean it's a place where you're on on your own with God. There's only room for two in it. Just you and God. To be under the fig tree meant that you were praying and you were meditating. Now, how good it is to have such a place. I hope here tonight you value such a place. I hope you know a place where you are yourself with God. It's easy for me. I officially have a study. Every minister is blessed with a study, which should be preeminently a place of prayer, but also of meditation and of the study of God's word. But you should have such a place too. And if it's not exclusively your own room, it's a place where you have your own time and your own space there. 
and you meet there with God. It's an amazing thing that the easier things become, the harder they become. The easier it is to get to church, the less effort people need to get to church. When people had to walk an hour there and an hour back, they were there. When they can drive a car there and drive back, they're not there. The secret place is a bit like that. It's so easy now. So many of our houses have so many bedrooms, so many rooms. Even in some of our cupboards we could be alone with God. But how little, I suspect, these closets are frequented. It may be the case that in many of our houses, even as professing Christian people, there isn't a spot that could be identified as the spot maybe where you meet God and God meets with you. It seems when space was at a premium, it was different. I remember reading of the woman in the Glasgow tenement in a tiny little space with six children and she used to wrap her shawl around her head and it was a sign to her family that their mother needed space with God. That's her closet. And in many of her own communities in the highlands, people would go behind a peat stack or go behind a hill or go to a beach or go to a rock. Sometimes where the marks of their knees were there, where they spent time with God. They valued it because Christ told us to go in to our closet and her father who is in the secret place sees us there welcomes us there and he will reward us openly I think there's something of that in what happens to Nathaniel I think the promise the Lord gives him is something of a reward for being where he should be underneath the fig tree so it is a place of prayer. Nathaniel was in the place of prayer. What was he doing there? Well, obviously, he was praying. And he was meditating. And the relationship with Jacob helps us to understand why. Christ didn't pluck these words out of the air. He didn't make these references to Jacob without knowing what was going on in Nathanael's life and heart. What was Nathanael doing in Jerusalem? He was listening to John the Baptist. What happens when you listen to a prophet of repentance? Well, you're often stripped by it. We all need stripping by a message of repentance. We all need it from time to time. Certainly if we are not believers, we need it. But when we are believers, we need it too. John came in the way of righteousness, and his message was repentance. He preached the law, he preached repentance, Mm -hmm. and he preached judgment to come. And if we are ever exposed to that as God willing, we all are exposed to it, we will respond to it by going to the secret place and making sure that everything is well between ourselves And God, it's a good thing when the word of God sends us to the secret place. I'm sure you've had that experience yourself. When you've heard a message from the word of God and and you can't wait to go to pray. You can't wait to open your Bible yourself because the Lord has spoken to you. And you need to go yourself with God. And it's not difficult to understand The kind of questions that plague this man. Having heard the Baptist, 
the need to prepare for the coming of the Christ. Am I his or am I not? I'm an Israelite, all right, by birth. I'm an Israelite by heritage. I'm an Israelite by nationality. I'm an Israelite by circumcision. But am I a true Israelite? I've been born one, but have I been born again? Am I an Israelite whose circumcision is of the spirit and not of the flesh? Am I an Israelite without guile? Am I a new man or an old man? Am I a Christian or am I not? Am I a believer or am I not? And of course, when the Word of God really searches, it really searches us. Even now when I'm praying, Nathaniel could say, am I really praying? Or am I, as Hezekiah said, just chattering like a corn creek? Am I just using phrases? Phrases that I've picked up from others, or phrases that I've just spoken from childhood. Is my heart in it? Am I the Lord's? Is the Lord's mine? After all, as John the Baptist has shown me, my heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately wicked. Do these things bother you in prayer? Do they bother you in your secret place? Well, let me say to you that if they do, good. I don't want you miserable. But it's good to ask these questions from time to time. It's good to have such a living response to the law of God and the need for repentance. It's good to have that kind of response. There's an important place for it. I'm not saying saying that you live your life in a case of um, constant doubting or anything of that kind. I'm not saying that at all. All I am saying is when the Lord appoints a certain kind of proclamation or message that you do take it to heart and that you search yourself and that you're not afraid to. When David said in the Psalms, Search me, O God, Yes, he began the psalm by saying, you have searched me. But you notice how he closes the psalm. Search me, O God. You who searched me then, search me still now. Know my heart and see if there is any wicked way in me. Please see see to it and show me it. And lead me then in the way everlasting. That is how Nathaniel feels. And coming out of the place of prayer, his heart is still heavy. But God doesn't leave us there, friends. When God strips us and brings us low, it's for a purpose. It's always with a view to, to taking us back up. He never strips us unless we need to be stripped. We all know. Sometimes we resent it at the time. But looking back, we say, well, I'm glad. I'm glad he took me really low there because he brought me to a better place. And God wasn't going to leave his own child in that condition. In fact, Nathaniel was going to have two meetings that would change his life forever. The first is just a meeting with his friend, Philip. Philip is from Bethsaida, which is again a village near Cana of Galilee. Bethsaida is where Peter and Andrew were from as well. Well, so is Philip. And Philip's been on a mission to find Nathaniel. The reason for that is because Philip has just encountered Christ. Because John the Baptist pointed him out. 
Philip is one of these people who had travelled south to hear the Baptist, and he longed for the Messiah, and he's met him. And because he's so full of Christ himself, he has to tell someone else about the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing he does is he finds Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, we have found him. The one we're looking for. The one whom over a thousand years ago Moses wrote about in the law. And ever since the prophets wrote about him. We found him. His name is Jesus. He is the son of Joseph. And he is from Nazareth in Galilee. Now these are, these are wonderful things. Um, now when Philip discovers Christ, I just mentioned that he tells others. Is that not an important thing to note? Andrew too, first thing he does, he finds his brother Peter. Is there not a precedent being set there? I would guess when two things like that happen in quick succession, there's a message being communicated. You find him or find someone else. He finds you, you find someone else. If, if you're slow to tell someone of Christ, or if I am, make no mistake, it's because there's something wrong in our hearts. There's something wrong. Now, it could be a variety of things. Maybe you lack assurance of faith yourself. Maybe, maybe your faith is flickering low. Maybe you just don't have much joy, for, for whatever reason. Because definitely when your joy is low, it's hard, it's hard to communicate to someone else what you've got when you're not that joyful in it yourself. But, but one way or another, if we find it difficult to tell people about the Lord, there is a problem. And, and we need to put it right. When your heart is full, it pours out. It pours out. First thing they do is they tell someone else. I want you to notice as a matter of interest that Philip's witness wasn't perfect. When he described Jesus, he was correct in describing him as being of Nazareth, but he certainly wasn't at least technically correct by calling him the son of Joseph. Maybe with charity we could say he was, but one of, in the sense of being adopted or taken into that family, but strictly speaking he is not. And an important part of recognizing who Christ really is is knowing that he's not the son of Joseph. But, but that doesn't mean that the witness wasn't blessed. I mean, sometimes I and you are afraid to speak in case we get something wrong or say something wrong. Well, that's a good enough fear to have, but it's not good if it muzzles you completely. I mean, sometimes you might make a mistake, but leave that with God. Better to say something, God's able to sort out these situations. I'm not saying that you go feet first and just say anything, but don't be worried about these things. God can look after that. You open your mouth and speak, and the Lord will bless it. The Lord will bless it. I, I think it's worth noticing, too, that when Philip uh, told Nathaniel about Christ, he didn't just tell him, but he invited Nathaniel to come and see himself. Um, 
And that's in spite of the fact that Nathaniel's first response wasn't very promising, was it? When Philip told him that he had found the Saviour, Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that would incline you to say, well, I'm not going to say anymore. I'm just going to leave it. Philip just said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Now, come and see is a wonderful thing to say. There are different ways of saying it. For example, if someone is reluctant to listen to you or, or, or if they have a prejudice of some kind, well, just give them a book. Give them the Bible. Give them a gospel. I often say to people that you can't go wrong doing that. You can't go wrong. Put God's word in their hands. That's, that's a way of saying, come and see. Read it for yourself. And then go to the secret place and ask God to bless that. I mean, there's, there's something not quite right about giving the book and not praying over it. I'm not saying God can do nothing with that. That would be foolish. But your duty is not finished by giving the book. You're to pray that it would be read and that God would bless it. Or perhaps you can say, come and see to a person simply by asking them to come to church. Now, I often find it astonishing the way that Christians have begun to think about this. As though a church is such an alien place that people couldn't possibly come to it. Now, I'm aware that there have been shifts in culture. But I think it's the devil that's put this in our heads, that there's something about a church that is so foreign that you actually can't ask anybody to it. Uh, It's not the case. I mean, think about it. What is it that happens in here? Uh, We sit together. We sometimes stand. I speak. We all sing. That's it. What's so bizarre and strange and unusual about that? When the world says, oh, you know, or when Christians say, oh, I can't bring people to church. Why not? Why not? What is it that's so bizarre about what happens. It's the devil's way of getting you to think that you just can't say come and see to anybody. Of course you can say come and see to people. Maybe the real reason we can't say come and see is because there's something wrong in the pulpit, which there can be. Maybe it's because the word of God is not being opened up properly, which may be the case. But if the word is spoken there, if it's read, if the preacher is there, if God is there, if God is in our assembly, why on earth wouldn't you say come and see to people? Do it. Nathaniel was very glad that Philip said come and see to him. Even when his first response was, it's not worth hearing anybody from Nazareth. Well, just come and see. Um, And as well as Philip there, it's interesting to note how Nathaniel does respond. I mean, when Philip says, I found the Christ, Nathaniel's heart was raised. Next words, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He was flattened. Because the devil comes in with prejudices. Don't go and listen to somebody from Nazareth. And uh, <laughs> that can work in so many ways. I mean, you could invite someone to the bridge centre and say, Bridge centre? I'm not going to the bridge centre. You know, there's nothing there for me. First response. Do you just leave it there? 
could easily say that. They could say that about yourself, the village that you're from, or the village that I'm from. Or There's loads of prejudices that people have, which are often just, there's not much to them. It's just a little thing that needs to be pricked, maybe by a little prayerful persistence. Nathaniel didn't allow his hang-up to stop him going to see you remember that too when you're sharing the gospel with others. But he goes to see for himself. I'm thankful to this day that when a woman told me to go and see somebody about the gospel that I did, looking back on it, I realise how fragile a moment that was because, well, I know that if God's going to do something, he's going to do it anyway. I know that. But looking back on it, I can see how fragile it was because I could easily have said no. There, there were a few difficulties attached with going to see the man that that woman had told me to go and see. But I did, by the grace of God, overcome them. I didn't notice the grace of God at the time, but I went to see the man and my life changed. You remember that too. Maybe you even need to hear it though you're here tonight. There's something God wants you to do. And you must do it. There's a difficulty. You go and do it. Thankful to this day too that I read the book of Ecclesiastes and found God in it because I was directed to do so. But in any case, come and see. So Philip and Nathaniel go together and on the journey he has a second life-changing meeting. Just going to look at a, a brief part of it tonight with you just in the brief time we have left. As they're making the journey to beside the Jordan where John's baptising, Jesus himself approaches. And Nathaniel can't believe it when this man who's approaching just suddenly exclaims out of the blue, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile or deceit. An Israelite indeed, who is genuine, a real Israelite. Now, notice at this point, there's no mention of a fig tree. There's no mention that this man knew that Nathaniel had been under a fig tree. There's no idea at all, really, as to who this man is at all. But suddenly, he just makes this incredible pronouncement. An Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. No sense in Nathaniel that this is a prophet of God. No sense that he's the son of God. No sense that he's the king of Israel. He's just somebody who actually takes it upon himself to make a pronouncement on Nathaniel's life and character. Astonishing. A pronouncement on his own life and character. And all he can say really is, how do you know me? In verse 48. That question is deeper than you think it is. It's not merely how do, you, how do you know who I am. It's how do you know what kind of person I am. How do you know enough about me to say that I'm a real Israelite and that I'm not a, that I'm not a deceitful person? How do you know that? Who are you? How do you know my thoughts? 
How do you know my feelings? How do you know my sitting down and my rising up? How do you know my heart? How do you know my anxieties? How do you know my thoughts? Who are you? You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is such a unique individual. Such a unique man. A God-man. A divine man. Sometimes when you sit in the house of God, and as the word is read and sung and preached, you feel that he knows everything about you. You can't explain it. You've never met him. You've heard about him. But as his word is preached, you feel, what is this? What is this strange power and strange communication? How is it that I feel that when the word of God is coming to me, it's unlike anything else at all in the world? How come I feel that everything's been naked and exposed? How come I've been identified and searched out? The Lord has his way of doing that. You can't explain it. You can't understand it. But you feel you're being known. That, that does relate to what I mentioned a moment ago in connection with the book of Ecclesiastes. I had read the Bible since I was a child, like most of you. But when I read it at that time, which was God's time, I felt that the author of the book knew me. Felt that the author of the book understood me inside out. And that's an awesome thing. You can read a book on psychology and, well, you can feel that the author maybe knows a little bit about human nature, but that's nothing like what happens when, when God speaks to you in his word. Nothing like what happens at all. It's a spiritual experience of an entirely different order. Oh, Lord, you are searching me and knowing me. Everything about me, even now as I sit here or stand here, is known to you. And especially, you can say to me that I'm a true Israelite. Who are you to say that? Surely only God can say that. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You can say that I have no guile in my heart. Who are you to say that? Oh, I would love to believe it. I would love to believe it, Nathaniel would say, that I am sincere before God. But who are you to say that I am sincere before God? And then the Lord just thunders back the reply. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that changes everything. Where we are under the fig tree is who we are, by the way. We're always who we are on our own. It's never the real us in public. God knows us in the secret place. And I saw you there. And Nathaniel, it's because of what I saw there that I pronounce now what I pronounce. I heard your groanings and your intercession. I saw your heart before God. I know that you're aware of your own evil, your own sin. I know that you're aware of your own unworthiness. I know that you're troubled by yourself. I know that you are a grief to yourself. I was reading Kenneth McRae's diary um, a few months back and I came across the entry where he simply said, I am a grief to myself. And I thought, oh well, yes, a Christian says that. I was going to say from time to time, but quite often. 
I know that, Nathaniel. I know too that you have brought your sin to God. And I know that you confess it. And I know that you're doing so honestly. You're not trying to vindicate yourself. You're not trying to excuse yourself. I know that you're a real Israelite. I know you're like your forefather hanging on to God and refusing to let God go until he blesses you. Well, that's what I'm doing just now. In these words that I am giving you, I am blessing you from God because you have wrestled with God and you have prevailed. In my eyes and in my father's eyes, you are a true believer. No wonder Nathaniel, well, all he can say is, Rabbi, you are, and isn't this amazing? John chapter 1, you are the son of God. And you are the Messiah, the King of Israel. And you say, well, I would love it if, if God would just say the same thing to me. But he does, friends. He does. If you are confessing your sins before God, and if you mourn your own unbelief, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that word to you should be as powerful as this word was to Nathaniel. Maybe you'd like, you'd like it to come in exactly the same way as it came to him. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But if that was wonderful, well, Christ has more to say to Nathaniel. And that takes us to the text that I'd like us to come to. And God willing, we will next Lord's Day. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, our God, who has the power to cleanse and take away defilement and the power to heal and take away our sickness and our pain, the one who brings assurance to the poor, needy and doubting soul, O Lord, help us to follow in the footsteps of Jacob and to prevail to have the sense to cleave to you and never to leave without your blessing oh may that blessing be with each one of us tonight and may none of us have rest for our souls until we find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere else will eventually be restless and eternally so until we find rest in him. Bless our meditation upon your word and may it send us later this evening under our own fig trees. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's close by singing in Psalm 51. Verse 6. Where God wants sincerity in the heart. Behold thou in the inward parts with truth delighted art. And wisdom thou shalt make me know within the hidden part. Do thou with hyssop sprinkle me. I shall be cleansed so. Yea, wash thou me, and then 
I shall be whiter than the snow. Of gladness and of joyfulness make me to hear the voice, that so these very bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. All my iniquities blot out, thy face hide from my sin, create a clean heart. Lord, renew a right spirit, me within. 6 to 10, we sing to God's praise. Stand to sing.